Hey everyone, welcome to the It's a Mind Game podcast. My name is Jade and today I have Belinda here with me who is one of my fabulous friends and also a mother of two who holds her Bachelor of Nursing Science, Masters of Midwifery, Postgraduate Certificate in Perioperative Nursing, as well as her Certificate 3 and 4 in Fitness. She's incredibly kind and compassionate and is mentally and physically one of the strongest women I know. Welcome, Belinda. Thank you. What an introduction. Wow. (laughs) Thank you. No, I'm so excited to have you here today. Um, On the podcast, a lot of it is women getting their periods back and then they get through that stage and then they fall pregnant and then a whole new set of questions come around. Yes. So I'm so grateful to have you here to get some clarity on what the hell do we do? Oh, boy. There's... That, that, is, that is a great question. What do we do now that we're pregnant? What do we do now that we've got a baby in our arms? It is a whirlwind of an experience having a baby, I must say. Being pregnant and having a baby, the whole journey is, is incredible. It's incredible what we're capable of, not only physically, but, but mentally, emotionally, and you just don't know what you're made of until you, you have children, I, I feel, for me personally. I thought I was a pretty strong, independent, emotionally stable person. And then I had my children and they just rocked my world in a good way, in a good way. Um, But, yeah. I will never forget some of the saving graces, which I guess is when our friendship really started to evolve because we know each other as our husband's trained together for jiu-jitsu and Sam, your hubby, used to coach me for Olympic lifting and then we crossed paths at the Christmas party, started chatting when I was heavily pregnant. And then I had Kasima and she wasn't sleeping and I had engorgement and I had all these crazy questions. And I just remember you saying at the Christmas party, like, oh, you know, I've got my two kids and I'm a midwife. And um, you were just very warming and accommodating to the idea of if you're not sure what to do, just have a chat. Let's just have a chat. So when I started having all of these questions, I found it really interesting that I didn't feel I wanted to go straight to say my my mom or my mother-in-law or um, to anyone else for that matter. I just wanted someone who I knew well enough that I could trust, but wouldn't have that sort of firm hold of you must do it this way, you must do it that way. And that's how you always presented yourself, very open-minded and you know, you'll find it works for you. And I just remember in some of those really rough nights of zero sleep, I'd send you a message being like, oh my God, she's not sleeping. What am I doing wrong? I can't do it. And you would just say, just love her as much as you can. You're doing a great job. Make sure she's fed. She's got a clean nappy and she's warm, cold, you know, good temperature. And every time you just had that baseline answer, it was so comforting because it wasn't, what are you doing wrong? What could you do better? it was just make sure you've got these few essential things covered and it's going to be all right babies cry it's okay and at the start you think that your baby shouldn't cry and obviously that's within reason but for a big part of those first few days of their life they cry (laughs) and you don't realize how much you think you're failing when it goes on for a prolonged period and how much you second guess yourself and question. Um, Did you find that with your babies as well? 100% I found that. And I felt like I 
started to withdraw from a lot of people. Um, I felt very alone. Um, like I, I shouldn't say that because, you know, I might have some friends listening, but I did have some friends that I felt wouldn't judge me and that I could trust to just let me complain. But my babies cried and my babies didn't sleep, you know, like they didn't sleep at all. And every time I would have a whinge that, you know, oh, I've been up five times, six times, ten times, um, there would always be a solution, that there would always be someone trying to offer me a solution to my problem. And uh, we do that as human beings, as girlfriends, mothers, sisters, we always just want to fix things and, oh, well, this worked for me. You're not doing this right. You need to do this. You need to let them cry it out. And I just became so just deflated that I felt like I couldn't really talk to anyone because I was so worried about how crappy I would feel after the conversation. I'm going to be really honest. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I did, I would get up with my baby in the middle of the night because they would be crying, I'd feed, and I'd be reading everything, everything about it. Like, how do you stop your baby from getting up in the middle of the night? Um, and every single time I read that, all the things that would be constant would be things like making sure your baby's fed, making sure they've got a clean nappy, making sure that they're warm or they're not too cold, um, not too hot. And just sometimes your children need you. They just need love, you know. And seeing my children grow up now, they're six and four, they're not completely grown up, but as they have been growing up, my children just need love. They are they are so attached to me, so they should be on their mother. But, you know, I can't leave the room without them saying, Mom, where are you? After I said, I'm just going to the toilet and we just need some privacy. For 30 seconds, there'll be a little, you know, head poke around the door. Are you done yet, mum? So for me, when people come to me with questions like you had, you know, what is wrong with my child? I would be like, there's nothing wrong with what you're doing. There's nothing wrong with your baby. Your baby just needs love. And for some people, like, it's not a problem until it's a problem. Have you heard that saying? Mm. But for me, um, sleep was a big thing. My children didn't sleep. And... I've read somewhere it's not a problem until it's a problem. So although I was super frustrated that I wasn't getting the sleep that I wished I was getting, I couldn't do the cried out thing. I just, I couldn't, I, I tried once and my husband was like, just go, go and go and pick him up. What are you doing? Like, is he, can you not hear him? He needs you. Like we were both just so distraught. So I think for me, definitely try and try not to always fix things. Just listening to what you have to say and just be like, it's going to be okay because you do have to have an open mind. You really do as a mother. What works for you won't work for me, Jade, and mm. so on. You know, a lot of people as a midwife, um, working as a midwife, a lot of the feedback that we would get from mothers and, and husbands and fathers would be, that so many people are telling you so many different things. Like one midwife would tell us to do this and then we'd do it and another midwife would say, that's completely wrong, don't do it like that. And it's not that one is right and one is wrong. It's just one worked one way and the other worked that way for the other person. 
don't know if that makes any sense. Does that make sense? Yeah, different yeah. things, different strokes for different folks. That's it. And like yeah. both things work perfectly fine. Mm. You know I mean, there's, there's more than one way to skin a cat. Yeah, I had a public health researcher on last week um, and she goes through research-based evidence of the highest profile and she gave us a breakdown of what makes it high-quality research and the journals that she goes through. And it was really interesting that of all the research that she's looked up so far when it comes to feeding methods, sleeping methods, um, milestone development, you know, those, those big blocks we tend to research like crazy while pregnant and the first few months of our kids' development. Um, the basis of all the research comes down to you need to find what works best for your baby and do it. Yeah, absolutely. And all these other websites and marketing employees will come down and say like, this is the best and this is the best and this is the best. And, you know, you might stumble across that first up and it just happens that that is best for you and your baby. And that's perfect. Or it might take you five different things and then you find your perfect, or you've just got your own unique model and it, yeah. it's not on the internet, but it works perfectly for you and your baby. And, and that's what matters. But I just found it so interesting that, um, so the, the research she's got access to, which you might as well, I'm not sure because of your qualifications, it's not something that you can get from Google. Um, oh. Yeah, like she needs a particular password to almost like university research journals. Oh. And, um, it's, and I just found that incredible too because you'd think everyone would have access to that science. Like shouldn't we all have rights to that? Um, whether you can understand it or not is a whole other thing because I probably couldn't. But, yeah, that was the foundation of everything that she's gone through so far, which is, you just need to find what works for you and your baby. And I think, um, you know, we we are in a society now where we all just, we, we all have to cope. Like, yeah, I'm coping. I'm doing great. Everything's perfect. You know, where we don't have our little our village like we used to have. Do you know what I mean? When, mm -hmm. you know, when I, I'm Lebanese. So growing up in a Lebanese community, like you would have everyone in the house on any given day coming and going. There would be 30 people going through my grandma's house. And so, you know, you would see mums and babies, you know, feeding, interacting. And, you know, I think I learned so much from my young years just by watching my aunties. And, you know, I was given the babies to look after and to hold on to and to feed and to change. And, and I don't think we do that so much nowadays so that kind of learning that community learning is lost mm. a little bit I don't, I don't know I maybe that's not making any sense either but I, no it's um, like the organic way of learning how to interpret what's coming towards you yeah. um like my my experience with babies was pretty much non-existent until I had Cosima um and yes absolutely I learned everything that I needed to in the time that I needed to it's not like a disadvantage but I can definitely understand if you've grown up having kids around you and then great grandparents and then aunties and you somehow get a certain wisdom yeah. um as you're growing that once you have babies you can kind of go oh I remember great grandma used to say this and I remember you know auntie so and so used to say this and then you can kind of get first-hand information rather than having to read Instagram and Google and all those sorts of things. Yeah, I think um, social media plays a really big role in our expectations of being parents. I um, I remember I had a friend ring me and they were really, really upset because their child was sick and they're like, you know, they're trying to do all these tests and I just, mm. I, don't, I don't want them to do them and I'm really, really scared. 
And I just, I said, listen, you are your baby's parent. You know them better than anyone else. Why don't you ask the doctors, you know, what happens if we delay this test just a few hours just to see how he picks up? Is it detrimental? Is he going to die if we wait just a few hours? Because you know that he's a well child. Mm -hmm. When they did his observations at that point, he'd been crying, he'd been screaming. So, of course, he was going to be hot. You know, they wanted to do a lumbar puncture on him. And, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, like really invasive treatment, right? Painful, of, invasive. Um, and I said, you know him better than anyone else. You've had him at home. Just you guys. No one's come to see him. So ask the question, what will happen if we just delay a few hours? And they did, and he, was, he didn't have the lumbar, lumbar puncture because he came good, he was fine. But I think we also really need to trust in our own intuition you know this especially as a mother that our babies have been growing inside of us for nine months i know we don't know them but we're attached to them we do we do know them um because they've been a part of us for so long and then they come out and it's just like well here you are you know i haven't known what you look like but i know you you're mine um sounds very airy fairy I am a little bit no it doesn't I'm about to start crying if you keep talking like that blended (laughs) you know it's so true I feel like you uh, it's easy for me to say my children are six and four right like I've gone through those those hard first baby years um but if it's one thing that I've really learned and I really just want to stress to your listeners and to other mums and dads like Trusting your instincts, you know best. And if it is detrimental where it's life and death and something bad could happen, then ask the question, you know, how long do we have? Can, can, we, just, can we just wait a few hours and see? Can we wait a few days and see? Can we wait a few weeks? Um, because, you know, there's something to that intuition. We have it for a reason. We feel that for a reason deep in our guts. It's, mm. it's our biology. If that makes any sense. I don't know. Yeah, and but I guess when it comes to pregnancy and labor, we have the right to question the same things. Yeah. Um, and I know something I learned before you and I sort of started talking more and developed the friendship that we've got now is that um you can actually question your midwife or your obstetrician. And if they're suggesting an intervention of some sort or they want to do a procedure, you can actually ask them, why do you want to do it? What's the benefit of doing it? What's the negative of not doing it? Um, And it's okay to have that open conversation rather than just be sort of told we're going to do this, 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 and this and take no sort of ownership over the conversation. Um, Would you encourage people to ask their midwives, obstetricians, anyone who's in their care at that time, if they do have a gut feeling or if they're not sure if they want some kind of intervention or procedure done, that they should learn more about it um what is going to happen if as you said if you wait if you don't do it um and get your mind sort of wrapped around the whole situation absolutely 100 percent. because the last thing that your obstetrician or your midwife wants to do is you know give you a negative um birthing experience or laboring experience like we're most obstetricians and midwives are there because they absolutely love what they do you know they love helping you through your laboring journey your pregnancy journey um your delivery journey 
I think that a lot of people get frightened. They don't want to offend their doctor or midwife by asking, but why? And I think it is super important that if something doesn't feel right to you and you don't understand why they want to do something, then you have to ask why. Because if you have that understanding, then it won't be so traumatic when it actually gets done to you and you think, well, why did, why did that just happen? Like my baby's fine. They told me that my baby would, you know, would deteriorate and they'd have to resus them or, or whatever if I didn't do this and my baby's fine. And now you've been left scarred because you didn't have your birth go the way that you thought it was going to go. Um, so please don't ever think that you will offend your obstetrician or your midwife by asking, by asking those questions. Like if you are unsure of anything at all, go for it. Like you, you can't shop your obstetrician or midwife. Like they've seen just about everything. They've heard just about every question, you know. Um, there is nothing offensive about wanting to understand why they're doing what they're doing to you because it's, it's, your, it's your one shot. That, that's this is your individual um, experience, you know. You, you can't ever get that experience back. The delivery of your baby, your, your pregnancy, you can't get that experience back. Once it's done, it's done. So if you want it to go a certain way and it's not going that way, then you have to ask those questions, well, well why can't it go the way that I've expected it to go, the way that I've planned for it to go, or the way that I want it to go? Um, yeah, sorry, that was a very long answer. No, it was a fabulous answer. No, no, the more you elaborate, the better. There's, it's, it's fantastic. Um, I guess with that in mind, what are some good questions that you could ask your midwife or your obstetrician while you're pregnant, when in labour? Um, do you have, I guess, some go-to questions that you find would be helpful for women? Yeah, so this is a really good question because just like everyone's an individual, every pregnancy is so individual as well. I think the most important things to, to ask are things like um, during your pregnancy, like if fitness and, and food is important to you, then obviously ask those questions about, you know, what can I do fitness-wise while I'm pregnant? Um, that was a big one for me, I have to admit. I, I would speak extensively with my obstetrician about what sort of exercises I could do. Um, especially because I had such big babies. I had a big diastasis, big, you know, ab separation. Um, so for me, that was very important. Fetal movements, I think, is really important too. Um, working where I work, I work at a, um, a private hospital, a obstetric private hospital, and, um, you know, the amount of people that come in with decreased fetal movements and don't really think anything of it, Do you, you know, like you can't feel the baby move, so you think, oh, no, it'll be okay. Well, I think it's important to, to understand how many fetal movements you should be having, when you should be having them, how to, how to assess whether or not, you know, um, there's actually something wrong with your baby or they're just having a bit of a sleep and what sort of things you can do to get them to move, you know, they have a big drink of water, have a lie down, have something sugary to eat. Um, I, to be honest, that's a really tricky question because it's, very, very individualised. What's really important to you is very different to what's really important to me. Well, maybe not you and I. We're very, mm, we're pretty similar. Right. <laughs> um, but, but that's probably the start. Maybe like let's yeah. say you've got your birth plan together, or you've yeah. got a vision about how you kind of think your pregnancy is going to follow through, and how you yeah. think labour is going to happen, and to yeah. maybe break that down. It's like, well, if I should be feeling this way, 
Um, what do I need to do? And if I'm currently feeling a way that I didn't think I would, like I'm nauseous or I'm really sick or yeah. I can't train like I thought I could, like break that down. Yeah, I think um, th- there's no question that's off limits. There's no topic that's off limits as well. So please don't ever feel embarrassed to ask. You know, sometimes you think, oh, God, does she think I'm an idiot to ask this question? No, absolutely not. You're, you know, you're not expected to know the stuff that, that your obstetrician or your midwife knows. So I think um, if you feel comfortable enough with your midwife or your obstetrician, just if, if you have something in your mind that you want to ask, that you want to know more about, um, then ask those questions. Don't feel ashamed. Don't feel embarrassed. And a thing that really worked well um, for a lot of you know, my, my women, my pregnant women, is I'd tell them to get a notepad, have it in your bag, because you'll have these random questions in the middle of the night or going off and doing your shopping. And then you'll forget to ask them when you're at your appointment. So have a list. Write down the things that come to your mind when you're not with them because nine times out of ten, you get to your appointment and you'll completely forget everything that you wanted to ask. And you'll walk out of there going, ah, I had 15 questions and I totally forgot to ask them. Um, But we do focus. This is one thing that I did want to talk about, I think, for me is, you know, my experience. Um, We focus a lot on pregnancy we focus a lot on the delivery and then not so much on after we've had the baby like what happens in that first week so I think it's really important having to think about about questions around that like how much will my baby sleep will my baby sleep you know when is my milk expected to come in and how long will that take and you know it takes some women you know two days it takes some women five days to two weeks it just depends on your labour depends on the type of birth you've had. It depends on blood loss you've had. Um, so I think also doing a little bit of research about postpartum because there's a lot of stuff that gets missed and get really surprised by. You know, I was very surprised in the postpartum phase. I, I don't know about you, but just felt like I concentrated so much on pregnancy and labour. I forgot about all the stuff that I was meant to know as a mother afterwards. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. And look, I was actually really grateful that um, one, I had a Caesar because everything worked out perfectly and Kasima was healthy and, you know, the outcome was just beyond perfect. Um, but it meant that I was in hospital for four or five days. So yeah. when I had a question, there was always a nurse there to just reassure me, comfort me, give me an answer. And I guarantee you every time a nurse walked in and I was breastfeeding, it was, are they latched properly? Are they okay? Like, is the milk coming? And they would just like have a check and yeah, everything's okay. And I was so grateful and especially more so months later when I could reflect on the guidance I had those first four days because so many women go home after 24 hours. Um, And don't get me wrong, if and when I have my second if I was home in 24 hours, I think I'd feel a lot differently because I know what it's like to breastfeed. I know what to expect from my newborn. Um, And I'm sure newborn life again, second time around would be so, so different, but my babies were just, sorry, my baby was just like (laughs) your babies in the way that um, she'd rather be awake than asleep. And those certain things, I, the most common comments you get from people is like the newborn stage is the easiest because they sleep so much. Yes. So that was my expectation, babe, newborn sleep. So that kind of rocked me a little bit. Um, and 
whenever I heard about breastfeeding, it was always milk not coming in. So all I really researched was how can I boost my supply? Um, But then I had engorgement and I'm like, what do you mean engorgement? Like, what, what is this? And I, that's when you come to my saving graces because you're like, oh, the magic of breast pumps. Yeah. Just pump, pump before you before you yeah. feed her. She'll latch much better. Yeah. And oh, my God, wasn't yeah. that a massive help? Because the engorgement didn't kick in till it wasn't too bad in hospital. It was so much worse once I got home. And by then I didn't have the nurses there. Yeah. And thank goodness I had you there um, because no one else in my circle breastfed. So they didn't. They didn't know. And if they did breastfeed, they didn't have engorgement. So it was like, I I don't know. I would love to help you, but I'm just not sure. Um, And just what you were saying about asking about those first few weeks at home, I never would have thought to ask those things because I I didn't know they could happen or they would happen. Um, I think, sorry to interrupt you, but I think um, especially from what I would see when I was learning to be a midwife, um, there would be questions around breastfeeding and the midwives would be like, oh, breastfeeding is natural. It'll be fine. You'll be fine. Don't worry about it. You want to breastfeed, you can breastfeed. It'll be fine. You know, you worry about that after you've had the baby. You, and <clears throat> I, I don't want um, to deter breastfeeding from any of your listeners, but to be absolutely honest with you, breastfeeding is one of the most difficult things that I have ever done. Um, my son and my daughter have tongue and lip ties. And my experience between the two, breastfeeding the two, were very different. Jackson just Jackson just sucked and sucked and sucked all day long to the point where I thought my nipples were going to fall off. I'm sorry for the um, too much information. It there, is what it is. It, it was so hectic. Like, I did not expect that. Like I thought, I'm a midwife, I know what to do. But <clears throat> like you, I had a cesarean. I, was, I had laboured all the night before, all that day. Finally had my cesarean section, had a baby in my hands and now breastfeed. I was exhausted. So, of course, I had him on my breast and I would fall asleep. I don't know about you, but the first couple of days of breastfeeding, every time I would start to breastfeed, I would start to fall asleep. I was just exhausted. I I don't know what it was. Um, So I had lots of grazing on my nipples, um, which brought me a lot of shame because, like, I'm a midwife. I should know how to breastfeed my child. But... They just kept slipping off because I kept falling asleep. And like you, I got the engorgement to the point where I would pull down my shirt and it would just spray. Like there would just everywhere. be everywhere. And like the poor dude couldn't get on because the it'd spray him so in the face and then they get upset. That's it's it. horrible. It's actually horrible because you hmm. obviously it's not intentional. You don't mean to do it. And then you just got this super cute, relaxed, chilled out baby who you know is hungry and you spray them in the face. And they are distraught about it. And it sounds funny. And I can laugh about it now. But at the time, I was like, oh, my God, I can't even just, like, pause the milk for a second. to, Yeah. It was so hectic. So, and then And and that also influences your confidence to breastfeed if people are around. Because I, so many people, if and when we did have visitors, because it was, you know, COVID lockdown time, um, I'd say to John, like, if I've, I've got to go upstairs to feed her. And he was completely fine with it. But the person who was visiting might go, oh, look, I honestly don't mind. It's fine. And I just have to sort of go, oh, no, look, it's okay. And for the most part, it was because you see in cafes, some women have got it perfectly down pat and they've got their little shawl that covers their boob and the baby's under there and there's no mess and it's quite graceful and they're sipping their coffee. And I thought that'll, that'll be me. 
<laughs> if I breastfeed, because it could be formula, I don't know. But if I breastfeed, that's what it's like. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, no, it was just, it was far from that. And it, it can actually create some anxiety because there's, you're already really, really tired. And then you've got all these other things to think about. And that literally could just be containing the milk until bub jumps on. Um, and again, things that you wouldn't think of until you're there. Yeah. And that's, and that's what you don't think about. You, you hear all the time that breastfeeding is really natural and you and your baby will know what to do and you'll be fine. Well, you learn as you go. And it is really great. And your baby kind of does know what to do, but it, it is a little bit tricky at first. You have to get to know your baby. Your baby has to get to know you. And it's like, it's a partnership. You guys will get there in the end, but it can be difficult at first. And I think, you know, talking to your midwife about breastfeeding is also really important in the you know, prenatal, perinatal phase. Um, and even doing a little bit of research about it. You know, maybe breastfeeding is not for you. There are drugs that you can take to dry up your milk once your baby's born. So you don't have to worry about your milk coming in or there being any leaking or anything like that. You can just put your baby straight onto the bottle if you'd like. I always wonder that. Just knowing, yeah, there's a... Because I always thought, because, um, yeah, I've always thought, how do women not, like if they choose to not breastfeed or whatever happens and they just don't breastfeed, how do they not get mastitis, especially if the milk comes in? Is yeah. that what they do? So they, they can give you a drug. And it's really helpful too for women who have, um, you know, delivered babies, stillborn babies and things like that. So oh, of course. No. Um, but you know, in those instances as well, that, mm. that can be really helpful. Um, so it's it's good to know your options about breastfeeding and not just to accept that it's natural. And if you really want to do it, you can do it. Because from experience as a midwife who's breastfed two children, both of my children, I had very different breastfeeding experiences. And both experiences at first, I did not find them easy. It was mm. hard, hard work. I um, cut you off about Frankie. Do you want to talk about your breastfeeding experience with Frankie? Thanks, my darling girl. So she had tongue and lip ties as well. And if look, if you get on the internet or if you talk to any pediatric expert, it's a first world problem, right? Um, you know, you don't see babies in third world, or you don't see women in third world countries complaining about tongue and lip ties. Well, that's because they're in a third world country. They're not in a third world country here. Um, so Frankie had both of them had tongue and lip, lip ties, and it's when um there's excess or overgrowth of the skin that attaches the lip and the tongue. So you can have upper, lower, you can even have cheek ties if it's that severe. And basically what it does is it hinders the you know, ability for the baby to latch and secure a suction around the breast. So they can't, can't latch properly. So in some instances, they just don't get enough milk. Some instances they can get enough milk, but breastfeeding is incredibly painful. Um, that was Jackson, who had tongue and lip ties. Great suction, no problem, but I had quite a lot of pain. Frankie, she couldn't get a secure suck, so she would gulp a lot of air, which meant that she would projectile vomit every single time I fed her. Now, I'm not talking just like a little posset, you know, a little spit here and there. Like, it was a projectile vomit um, to the point where I went through cupboards daily for towels. Like, I would be washing towels every day. They'd be vomit splatters all over the floor um and at six weeks like the, and for two weeks like I wondered why my child was vomiting so much and why 
um, she wasn't gaining weight because I had milk. Like I had so much milk, like Jackson. Um, and then it wasn't until I thought, Ugh, I haven't looked in her mouth. Maybe she's got tongue and lip ties. And I had a look and fair enough, there was a tongue and lip tie, which kind of disappointed me a little bit because I had a pediatrician check her. And she knew that there were tongue and lip ties when I went to my six week six weeks checkup, but she hadn't told me at birth. Really? So, and it's like this first world problem, right? Like they don't have these problems in third world countries. It's just something, it's like a pseudoscience here apparently. Um, but let me tell you, I got her tongue and lip ties lasered at six weeks and it dramatically improved. She was still having some issues um, with a bit of vomiting here and there, but it was a lot better than what it had been. There was no more projectile vomiting. She at least settled. She wouldn't, she would just feed on my breast for 23 out of the 24 hours a day because she was vomiting so much. So she wasn't having a full stomach. So she wasn't sleeping well. Like it was really, it was really hard. I sound like such a whinger saying that breastfeeding is really hard. So I know that there are some women that really don't have any milk and they really can't breastfeed. But from my experience, it was, it was exhausting. And, but different women will have different experiences and it's okay to acknowledge that sometimes breastfeeding is traumatic whether your milk's coming or not and it's okay if you couldn't breastfeed and you're sad about that and it's okay if you could breastfeed and you've still got sadness around it mm-hmm. um and I you've probably experienced this conversation more than anyone I know and that's it breastfeeding tends to be such a tricky topic to navigate mm-hmm. because people's emotions and views around it tend to be really sensitive Mm. um yeah I was quite open-minded to fed is best and that comforted me it's like I'm going to try breastfeeding and if it works it works if it doesn't it doesn't and I felt long term that put me in a much better position because I didn't have an expectation um but you know there is a lot of women out there who even before they've delivered their baby they've got all this research at hand and it's like breast is best breast is best um and then for whatever reason things work out different and it could even be there's been a complication with baby they're in the NICU ward and you've got to express or they've got to have formula top-ups because your milk hasn't like there's actually so many reasons that you don't realize until you've actually had a baby or you've spoken to other mothers that might interfere with your ability to breastfeed that's actually got nothing to do with your milk production yeah yeah that's right I've known so many women their children have had tongue and lip ties and they've been diagnosed and have been able to breastfeed and it's not until they've had subsequent babies that they've realized hey hang on this is a real thing and they've been straight onto it had them assess the tongue and lip ties, had them lasered or snipped or whatever, and have had really successful breastfeeding journeys after that. Mm. One of my good friends has had three children. Her first child, she couldn't breastfeed past six weeks because she had severe tongue, lip and cheek ties. And she didn't realise until like further on into the the, the baby's life, had them lasered. Um, But that also affects their speech as they're older. So if you don't get those tongue and lip ties checked and, and treated, it can um, impede their speech as they get older and it can impede their eating because if the food, they can't use their mouth correctly. They can't chew their food correctly. So they'll obviously avoid things like steak and I mean, eating your baby steak, but as they get older. But when they get there. Yeah, that's right. They, they can't eat that food. So um, my nephew, he was three when he had his 
tongue and um, lip ties done. But they had they had it lasered, and he had to have an anaesthetic for that because he was obviously too old, too old, um, and aware, and aware exactly. Um, because I had to lie very still to have that done, um, and he wasn't speaking. He hadn't been speaking, like, you know, they meant to say certain words and so many words at the age of two. Um, and I mentioned to my brother, why don't you just get him assessed? Like, it, it could be a number of things. It could be his hearing, but it could also be his tongue and his lip ties. So just if he's got any, have a look in his mouth, go to a professional, go to a dentist that's certified in doing laser treatment for them. And he did, and it was the tongue and lip ties that were in his speech. So I guess um, it's not... I don't feel like it is pseudoscience. And in my gut, I knew that there was something wrong with Frankie and her, her feeding. And, you know, it's one of those things, as I mentioned before, like trust your instincts, you know, like all the pediatricians were telling me that it's pseudoscience and it's rubbish. Well, there are all these instances that I can think of where it's not. Like the mm-hmm. ties really did influence feeding, speech, breastfeeding, um, so yeah, just it, what's the harm in getting it checked anyway? Um, well, I don't even know what we're talking about then. <laughs> Sorry, Andrew. no, 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 because oh. it's um, <laughs> no, because Cosima had a tongue tie, and I think that's where it's good to just analyze that that gut instinct is so important because um, they noticed she had a tongue tie, and they were very concerned about it every time she come in, and. I might have even spoken to you about it once I got home because John and I just decided that we didn't want to do anything too quickly because we don't know a whole lot about it. Um, And, you know, she's, she's a brand new baby. We really don't want to snip anything that we don't have to. And at the time they said to us implications of tongue ties, cheek ties is they're not going to feed properly. It could affect their speech. And essentially they can't poke out their tongue properly. And John and I decided that, at the moment, she's making all the sounds that she needs to as a newborn and she was feeding really well. We didn't have the projectile vomiting or anything like that. And we decided we'll just we'll wait a little bit longer. Yeah. We're not seeing any negative effects yeah. and let's just wait and see. And then I think I saw my midwife a few days later and she said, yeah, look, if that's what your gut's telling you yeah. and she's feeding well, just go with that and just be mindful that the tongue tie is there in yeah. case things start to change, that yeah. could be what's causing it. And she said, but when she's a little bit older, if you can, just keep trying to poke your tongue out to encourage her to poke it out because for the really mild ones, they can just stretch the skin. Yeah. And touch wood, that's, that was the outcome for us. She yeah. fed just fine and she pokes her tongue out just fine now. And yeah. um, But there was the potential there to sort of freak out and react and snip the tie. Yeah. And in, you know what, it, it wouldn't have hurt her if we did get it snipped. Like there was no actual negative outcome, regardless of the choice. But yeah. just what you were saying about the, the gut feeling. Yeah. And it's like, I just, I just felt like it, it was going to be okay. Like yeah. there wasn't, and I had no merit behind it. I just, and yeah, so far everything's worked out that way. Jackson, and mm. um, yeah, Jackson, we didn't get Jackson's done because there were no issues like he's had no issues with eating speech but at the time Frankie she needed yeah Yeah. and that's probably a good thing to address just what you said about the vomiting too like we know newborns puke like they do and they do it a lot 
But if they're projectile vomiting, it doesn't necessarily have to be a tongue tie or a lip tie, but that's not normal newborn behavior. There was something not right. And mm. yeah, I just, and then I felt like a failure because I was like, what am I doing wrong? I've, I've already had a child. I've already breastfed. Why isn't this working like it did before? What's, mm. You know, I thought it'd be a real walk in the park. But um, it's just different. It was different. And it will be different when you have more than one child. <laughs> yeah, it's funny though, because I even think now, come second time around, I would have a more relaxed attitude just because I feel like I've learned a few things that I didn't know before the second one. But then the other 50% of me is like, yeah, this is a whole new human. Yeah. <laughs> You've got no idea what that little human is going to bring to the table. No, you're right. They do throw you, the second ones do throw you a bit of a curveball. Um, but I think you have more faith in yourself, you know, like mm. you to trust your instincts more with your second because that's what got you through with your first you know just it's like you've had the practice that trusting your intuition pays off where at the start it's like do I trust it do I not trust it yeah well this is my first baby like I'm not supposed to know anything I don't Mm. know anything so I'll trust everyone else around me well yeah you can do that but also be guided by your gut I think that's that's really important too can I ask you I guess a little bit more on the practical side of things when it comes to delivery um there's quite a few intervention methods these days stretch and sweeps and inductions and obviously cesareans and episiotomies and are Mm. they called tongs these days tongs they tongs they clip the baby and pull them out oh like there's suction suction. there's the suction do they maybe they don't use them anymore but they like oh yeah your forceps delivery forceps thank you tongs yeah, Very well versed, I am. They look like big tongs, they really do. Um, yeah, so uh, what do you want to know specifically? Like, what sort of things you want to talk um, about? Maybe could you walk us through what an induction is and why it's used? And then we might break down some of the other ones. Yeah, sure. Okay, so there's a few different ways to induce labor and a few different reasons why your obstetrician will be wanting to induce your labor. So, the obvious one is you've gone post you 40 weeks and 10 days um, we don't know really why we go to 40 weeks like if the baby's cooked at 40 weeks it has to come out and if we leave it in any longer then there will be you know dire consequences for you and your baby um, so depending on your, your your readiness to deliver your baby so depending on the cervix you can have the gel put in to ripen the cervix to help bring in labor um, if your baby is quite low down, you can have, you know, a rupture of membranes. The reason that they don't like to rupture the membranes if your baby is still quite high um, is because you can have a cord prolapse. So, you know, that's, they want to make sure that the baby's head is well low so that, you know, there's something in between the cervix and the baby's head. Um, and they would really only do a, like a, a um, rupture of membrane if you were, you know, dilated somewhat um, but you hadn't been contracting or going into labor for whatever reason Um, or if you are in labor but you don't have um, very good contractions or uh, consistent contractions I guess um, they can put in put up the oxytocin drip which the feel good drip isn't really comfortable you know it can bring on labor pretty hard and fast or you can bring on contractions pretty hard and fast 
Um, so yeah, they're, they're the most kind of common, common uh, ways to induce you. Um, just a disclaimer, I haven't been on a labor ward for a few years now. So there could be lots of other different ways that they induce your labor as well, different methods and reasons for, for inducing labor, but um, they're just the ones that, that you know, I was used to when I was working in the labor ward. Um, really important though, that you know why you're getting induced. It's really important to know what the side effects of being induced can be. Um, and just asking, really asking why, like you, you are in charge of your body and your baby. So have that full discussion with your obstetrician. And if something isn't making sense, then get them to elaborate. Like if you're not understanding, get them to, to, to explain it more to you. I think that's really important. Um, I think depending on where you are, if you're in the public or the private sector, probably much the same. Um, they just want the baby out as quickly and as safely as possible. Um, and that not, may not align with the way you want to deliver your baby, the way that you want to labour at least. Mm. Um, That's probably a really important thing to touch on though. It's like it, it's one thing to have a birth plan that kind of makes you feel empowered and excited and happy and, you know, all the fun parts of being pregnant, but it's also a really good thing to be well prepared that sometimes things don't go to plan and that's yeah. okay. And yeah. how are you going to process it if things do go off track? Yeah. And are yeah. you going to be okay if you're presented with some intervention method? Um, how are you going to process it? What kind of questions are you going to ask? Because sometimes it's easy to go, no, no, it's just going to be perfect. I don't need questions. And it's like, you always need questions. Yeah. Always. Absolutely. Especially um, just having having some idea about a Caesar and what the Caesar involves and why they would do a Caesar. You know, a lot of women don't want to have a Caesar. Um, and that's absolutely Get fine and fair. You know, you just, you just want to try and have a vaginal delivery. Absolutely. That was me with my first pregnancy. Um, I was going to do anything it took to not have an epidural and to have a vaginal delivery. Little did I know that my baby was four kilos and I just don't have a wide enough pelvis. So he wasn't going to come out like that. Um, and, you know, I kept saying to my obstetrician, really, really want to try for vagina birth, really don't want an epidural. And when it got to the point where I was two centimetres dilated and I'd been in horrible labour, <laughs> like I was having contractions every minute, every minute for two hours and my cervix dilated to two centimetres. Like it had done nothing. Um, so I... I've changed my mind. Give me an epidural. Give me an epidural. Had the epidural and then Jackson started to have late decelerations. So late D cells are where his heart rate drops after the contraction. So he wasn't happy. Um, and I had heard them on the monitor. But I know that my obstetrician, he knew that I wanted a vaginal delivery. So he was just waiting to see how it was all going, you know. Um, but I feel like after my epidural, I kind of went somewhere else. Like, I don't know if I drifted off to sleep or I just relaxed for a little bit. 
And then I kind of came to when I heard the late D cells, because, you know, I had the monitoring on me and I could hear his heartbeat. And I heard his heartbeat drop and I remember looking at the midwife and I remember saying, is that a late D cell? And she said, yeah, you've had a few of them. Mm. What, are, what are we doing? Why? Why? Are we why are we waiting? Why? Where's Wei Ching? Does he know? And she said, where's my obstetrician? Sorry. <laughs> Where's my obstetrician? Does he know? And she was like, yeah, he's away. And I said, is he here? Can I talk to him? So she brought him back. And I said, you know, there's been some, there's been some um, heart, heart rate drops. And he's like, yeah, we're keeping an eye on it. And then, you know, we'll give you some oxytocin because we'll, we'll give you the, um, the drip because your contractions have died off with the epidural. And I looked at him and I said, just call the Caesar. Like have, if I've had like, I've had these heartbeat drops. Would you normally call a Caesar? And he's like, look, I think you, you might have to have one. We can see how it goes. And I said, I know I really want a vagina birth, but do you think it's going to happen? And he's like, Belinda, most likely not. And I said, call it, call a Caesar. Let's do it. Get him out, you know. Um, and I had him and he had the cord wrapped around his neck twice. So wow. with all the contractions, the cord had been pressed, so it was decreasing the blood supply to him. So he was having, you know, these big drops in his heartbeat. The kind of take home from that is that my obstetrician really knew, he knew that I really wanted to have vagina birth. That's all I talked about. That's all I'd wanted. But then in that moment, something was wrong with him, you know, and I was the one that was like, Let's do a Caesar. Let's get him out of me because I was also aware that I didn't want to have a Caesar at midnight if we kept waiting because that's what would have happened. Mm-hmm. We would have waited a few more hours or there could have been something really wrong with him. We'd waited too long. Mm-hmm. So I think I've got a really good understanding of a Caesar. I'm a carry-up nurse. I do lots of Caesars every week. So I know what they are about. I know what's involved in them. I know why we do them know about the recovery of them so I think it's just like it's important to know that Caesars aren't scary um they're there for a reason and in my instance they saved my little boy's life you know I wouldn't have been able to deliver him vaginally and um yeah just just have a think about all the things that well have have a think about other options during your labor like it might not go to plan you might not be able to have vaginal birth What's, what's another alternative if, if you can't have vagina birth? What happens if you have to have an emergency Caesar? What is that about? And, you know, have to talk to your midwife or your obstetrician about the Caesar and the process, the, the pros, the cons. Um, yeah, for me, I already knew I was really lucky. Um, but I think that's something that, that you should consider as well. Like it's having a Caesar. I, think, I feel like there's two trains of thought. There's like the Caesar, Caesar is the devil. You need to just have a vaginal birth or have to have a Caesar because why would you have a vaginal birth? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Kind of, yeah, there's two different schools of thought on it. Yeah, um, but I was very open-minded to anything. I was, I feel like I, I was very open-minded to having a Caesar because I kind of knew in the back of my mind that I would need one. I was, I was so heavily pregnant. I was so big with Jackson. When I say he was four kilos, he was like almost nine pound. Mm. Which is um, a big baby. And how tall are you? I am 159 centimetres, so 5'2". Mm. Um, 
you know, I was I was pretty short. I am pretty short, and I was pretty small, and he was a big baby. So although I really desperately wanted to have vagina birth, I, I just I always knew in the back of my mind that it just wasn't going to happen. Um, and just to have that open mind, you know, be open to things not going to plan, that was my big thing. Anything can happen. Yeah, I feel like there's two takeaways from that story too. Which one? Thank you for sharing it. Um, but also if you hadn't had the knowledge that you had about the heart rate and stress to the baby, your obstetrician was making his decisions based on your desires, potentially before how stressed out the baby was, because obviously he's trying to make you really happy with your birth and not experience any trauma. But a question I'd never actually thought about even until you just brought that up then is, um, well, what happens if we wait this out? And you didn't know there was the two loops around Jackson's yeah. neck yeah so time plays such a big part yeah. your obstetrician or your midwife's desire to fulfill your perfect birth plays a big part yeah. and honestly they're two elements I never once thought of until you've just brought it up but actually play such a big part on how everything plays out because let's say you didn't have that knowledge and your obstetrician was like all right let's just try one more induction method see if we can speed things up and move things along um, but the outcome could have been so different. And that could have been like you still had a cesarean anyway. And it was just you went through the stress of labor for a lot longer than you needed yeah. to. And yeah. Jackson was still happy and perfect. And, you know, it was still a great outcome. But yeah. did you really need to go through yeah, more right. hours of labor only to have an outcome that was kind of likely to be that way anyway? Right. Um, mm, no, thank you for sharing that. There's a lot of takeaways from, from that experience. Um, and now I know you deliver so many babies or help deliver so many babies through cesarean because one morning we were meant to train together and you're like, oh, I got called in delivering babies. And I was like, God, oh, amazing. I wish I could say that I couldn't show up somewhere because I was delivering a baby. Um, could you actually take us through? Oh, so I guess I'll go back a little bit. When I had a Caesar, I, I didn't put much thought into it. It's like, there's a slit, the baby comes out and I get stitched back up. And then I watched something that <laughs> broke down the layers that get cut through in order to get the baby out. And suddenly I felt a little more like a warrior than just yeah. some lady who had a basic slit in her belly and her baby popped out. Um, could you maybe describe the layers that get cut through as a result to, and you can go on in, in depth as you want or as basic as you like, completely up to you. Um, but I guess for women to get their head wrapped around, and this is not to scare anybody off, Belinda and I both had very good experience with cesareans mm-hmm. and are training now and, you know, like very happy with the outcomes. But just more to recognise, um, you know, like I jumped into exercise way earlier than I should have because I didn't understand how deep the incision is and how much muscle and tissue gets cut through to have a cesarean. So it's more just on the education front and perhaps for women to put the brakes on a little bit come time to return to exercise because you know what, the body does go through a lot of trauma through that surgery. Yeah. So when you have a cesarean, it it is major abdominal surgery. You are cutting through all of the layers of the abdomen to get to the uterus. So when I was doing my postgraduate studies, um, one of the questions were how many layers of the abdomen are there? And there's like 12 different layers 
like ridiculous. Now, I don't remember all of the names of those ladies, <laughs> but there are quite a few. And I, I sometimes feel like, you know, people have this stigma around having this easy, like it's the easy way out. Well, let me tell you, my friend, it is not that easy because as you say, you are cutting through all of those layers of your tummy to get to your baby. Like it still has such a big impact on your body and your recovery. Now, in saying that, even though you have had this major abdominal surgery, you cannot believe how quickly and well you can recover from one. Like I was really shocked at how little pain I actually had after having the Caesar. Now, I think part of that was calling the Caesar earlier with my first child. That played such a big role in that because if I had just let my body continue to labour and labour and labour, then I don't think I would have recovered as well or as quickly um, as I did. I had a, um, a booked Caesar with Frankie second time around and the recovery was even quicker, you know, because I hadn't gone. Really? I way. always wondered that because it's like you're going through the same incision twice. Is there scar tissue? Is there all these sorts of things? But no, that's really interesting. 100% I recovered even quicker. There was even less pain because my body hadn't been through the, the rigors of, of labour. You know, like I had a good sleep. I made sure I had drank, you know, three litres of water the day before so I was well hydrated, all that stuff. So with your, your abdomen, you obviously have, I'll, I'll break it down so that it's not 12 layers because that's just too much, but you've got the skin, then you've got, you know, the subcutaneous, the fat layer. You've got the, um, the rectus sheath. So you've got a little sheath that covers your muscles, okay? So you don't just have kind of muscles that, that work there encapsulated in what we call a sheath and they keep all the muscles um, nicely encased because if they weren't in the sheath, then you would have like muscles and, and guts protruding through, okay? So there's the sheath that they cut through and then you have your muscle layer that they go through. Then what they do, because your uterus and your bladder kind of sit very closely to one another, they dissect down the bladder to make sure that it's well out of the way. So there's some connective tissue that kind of connects the uterus and the bladder to each other. So they dissect that down, make sure that's well away to protect your bladder. They put like a little, um, uh, my mind's going completely blank now, a little retractor in the way to, to make sure that the, the retractor keeps the bladder well and clear of the uterus. And then they cut through to, cut through the uterus, they cut through um, the, the sac that's encapsulating your baby and they either can bring the baby out nice and easily with their hand and a little bit of pressure on your tummy or they have to put in the forceps to help guide the baby's head out of your abdomen. So that's quite a lot of layers that they have to get through to get your baby out. Um, depending on your previous surgeries will also depend on how easy it is to get through those layers. So you may have some scar tissue, you may have some adhesions where different organs have adhesed to other organs. Um, so like the bladder can be a little bit difficult to dissect away from the uterus. Um, but that's why you have these obstetricians that have studied for tens of years and have all of the knowledge and expertise that they have in doing these operations. Like they don't just let anyone go in and do a Caesar, right? Like these are trained professionals. Um, so things can go wrong when you have a Caesar, just like things can go wrong when you have vagina birth. Um, you can bleed just as much as you can bleed having a, a vagina birth. So, you know, PPH is still, is still a risk factor in having a Caesar. 
you can, excuse me, you can get an infection from having a cesarean section um, for, you know, many reasons. Um, but, um, sorry, my husband just walked into the garage. Hello. Hi. Um, but yeah, your body does go through quite a lot when you're having a, a cesarean section. But then in saying that, you put together really well, right? Because we don't want guts and stuff falling out of people at home. So lots and lots of sutures going to putting your uterus back together. What they generally do is they put two layers um, of sutures through into your uterus because just say you want to have another baby, you need to make sure that the uterus is going to be strong enough to withstand another pregnancy. So they put in two layers into the uterus. They make sure that the uterus is clear of the um, the placenta, so they make sure that the placenta is completely out, which is one good thing about a, a Caesar. You know, you can make sure that it's completely completely clear of, of any uh, membranes or placenta. Then they'll sew back that rectus sheath because if you don't if you don't sew back the rectus sheath, um, what can happen is you can create a hernia. So they make sure that that's sewn back really well. Then they sew back your fat layer, okay? And then they sew back the skin together and hopefully give you a nice scar. Um, you know, I hear a lot of the obstetricians saying that the success of the Caesar is measured by how good the scar turns out. <laughs> so most people are more worried about their Caesar scar than anything else. And, um, there's so much more that goes into just that scar, like, you know, getting all those layers sewn back together, making sure that there's hemostasis, that you're not bleeding too much. Um, there's a lot that goes into it, but it's life-saving. And, you know, I've got two beautiful babies thanks to, to a cesarean section. And just like that, you know, just with the recovery after a Caesar, Think it, and even after having a vaginal birth, like give yourself some time to recover. Like, you know, you haven't just gone and cleaned the house or, you know, entertained for a dinner party. Like, your body has gone through so many changes by A, growing a baby and then delivering a baby, whichever way, Caesar or vaginal birth. Um, and then to, you know, stopping the bleeding you know the uterus has to contract and all these different hormonal changes take hold and fluid shift in your body after getting rid of you know the baby the placenta all of the amniotic fluid just postpartum you don't have to race back out there and be wonder woman give your body that time to just heal and and relax and I'm so guilty of this you know I was like right it's been a week I'm going for a walk around the block I need to move I need to move now um and I didn't do any harm in doing that because I was very careful it was just a walk around the block <laughs> um but I know that a lot of ladies do rush back into exercise um, and do inappropriate exercises because they want to look a certain way or feel a certain way. Um, for me, exercise isn't just about how I look at the end of it. It's about how I feel. Like it is a real stress relief for me. Mm -hmm. uh, if I don't exercise, I, I don't like the person that I am. I'm, I'm not a nice person. I'm so stressed and anxious and it really levels me out. 
Um, so pulling back the reins when it came to exercising after I had my children was a really, really big mental game for me. It was really hard. Um, choosing my exercises appropriately after having a baby was, was probably the most important thing in my recovery. Um, I was a weightlifter before I had my children. I did Olympic weightlifting as a sport and I competed in it. Um, to give people, I guess, a bit of a background, because a lot of our listeners are training and are well aware of weights and different movements. Can we whip out some max lift numbers so people have got an idea of some of your strong oh, lifts? Okay, so look, if you put it into perspective and you're looking at the Olympics, so it wasn't amazing. Um, oh, any, any, because I, I look at your training and even how you train now, and um, I can never see myself squatting the kind of weight you squat. Like it's, it's quite incredible. So we're not talking someone who leisurely goes to the gym you are quite intense when it comes to your strength training so when you wanted to return to full capacity you know your your timeline was a lot longer than someone who kind of trains more for fun and for health because you naturally push a lot more weight than you know a a stock standard person um so for me when I did my when I was Olympic weightlifting um I think my max back squat was 115 kilos. My front squat was 100 kilos. I could snatch 65 and I could clean and jerk with 85 was my best clean and jerk. And that was at 58 kilos body weight. So quite, quite little. Yeah, so you you were squatting nearly double. Yeah. I, your I weight, like yeah. That. Just because people understand, because obviously training capacities are so different amongst different people. And if you're returning to exercise and your exercise of choice is, say, Pilates or yoga focused or um, high rep, low weight, your timeline back to training is going to be so different to someone who's returning back to your volume and, you know, heavy lifting. So I just wanted to set a bit of context, but no, keep keep going because you also had ab separation as well. Yeah. So you had to take it really slow. A big diastasis. So going going into pregnancy, I was of the mindset that I'm just going to continue kind of doing what I'm doing. Obviously, I'm not pushing for max max weight anymore. It's more about just moving the weight around, keeping my technique tight, um, and just just moving. You know, being around my teammates was really important for me too because that was part of my mental health um, and postoperatively as well. Getting back into Olympic weightlifting was a long journey. Um, I obviously waited for six weeks before I did any kind of structured training. I did like I, I would walk, and I had this um, really horrific machine called an Airdyne bike. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would just get on there and like cruise my legs around for twenty minutes. Um, and to give listeners context. You know, I would be used to training six days a week, one and a half to two hours a day, sometimes double sessions. So I was very used to exercise, probably like your listeners, so probably like mm-hmm. exercising as well. Um, but, you know, my body was very well accustomed to all of the exercise that I had, I had been doing during my pregnancy as well as postpartum. Um, but at that six-week mark, I went and saw my obstetrician, I went and saw my physiotherapist, because I had worked very closely with my physio as well because of the diastasis. I had, I think, about a, a three-finger gap in my ab separation. Um, so 
for me, that was the priority to get my abs to come back together and not to hinder that in any way, shape or form. Um, because, you know, as well as doing obstetrics in the operating theatre, I'm also a plastics nurse. So I do lots of plastic surgery and bringing back those abdominal muscles is one of the operations that we do in plastic surgery, you know, in abdominal plastic, you've probably heard of it. Um, so, you know, you kind of cut away the lower part of the flat part of the apron of the abdomen. But what we also do is we sew up that rectus sheath, that abdominal sheath to help bring the, the abdominal muscles back together and give it some strength again. Because if you've had a, a diastasis, if you've had an ab separation, you never really have that strength that you used to have. So not only, not only do you have like a, a gaping belly sometimes because you know your, your belly's kind of pushing forward, but you're also getting a lot of back issues. You know, you get a really sore back because you don't have the strength in your abdominals to help hold your body in a position that it's meant to be in. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't give it the support. Um, so for me, getting the diastasis back to where it should be or getting it rectified is really important. So I had a list of little exercises that I was supposed to do and exercises that I was absolutely to avoid post postpartum. Um, and even in, during my pregnancy, when I had the diastasis, there were exercises that I absolutely had to avoid. Um, and basically that being um, just anything that increased my intra-abdominal pressure was to be avoided. Anything that I needed lots of abs to stabilise my body was a big no-no. So yes, yeah, so we're talking crunches, yeah. plank holds, yeah. hanging, because hanging, if people hanging. don't know, actually activates your core a whole lot. Yeah. Standing presses, you know, because the vast majority of my Olympic lifts are standing overhead, you know, the mm. snatch standing overhead, um, clean and jerk standing overhead. So um, when I came back into training, I was very mindful of if I did anything overhead, it was super light and it was always seated. Um, I did lots of core activation drills and lots of pelvic floor drills um, even though I didn't have a vaginal birth it was still really important that you know you, you, you put the floor and your core are, are kind of one you can't just do one without the other so I was very mindful of working my, my deep core muscles switching on my deep core muscles and also working in my pelvic floors and that was just part of my warm-up routine so you know you can't find time to do. I can't find time to do my pelvic floors. Or always forget to do my pelvic floor exercises. Now that's part of your warm up routine. And even when I've trained clients postpartum, um, whether it be I've, I've trained people early, as early as six weeks postpartum to you know clients who have eight month olds that this is the sequence that we're doing. These are the activation drills that we're doing. This is the this is all part of your warm up so that it doesn't get missed. Mm -hmm. right. um, and for the most part they are short movement patterns as well yeah. you know it's not like yeah. another training routine where you've got to spend an hour doing it no. it can be five to ten minutes and it's very efficient but a big part of it and I guess that's where it really helps to see pelvic floor physio yeah. is knowing if you're contracting properly because so many women think they're doing pelvic floor and their intentions are are there they're perfect intentions but they're either holding for too long or they're not completely relaxing or they're pushing past relaxed 
which obviously can cause other complications later on. Um, would you say that you're an ad- advocate for seeing a pelvic floor physio either during your pregnancy or afterwards? Oh, 100%. Still see them before, like, during your pregnancy, 100%. Because if having a good pelvic floor isn't just during your pregnancy or just during the birth or just after the birth. Like, your pelvic floor is important for the rest of your life. Now, we have trouble as we get older as women because we've had babies, whether it be we've had them vaginally or we've had seizures. You know, just all that pressure on your pelvic floor, all that pressure on your abdominals will affect, you know, you having bladder control issues as you get older. I mean, how many times have you gone to do a box jump or, you know, double Mm. under? Oops, wait a little bit. I can feel that, you know. Um, So it's doing this will set you up for the rest of your life, having really good bladder control for the rest of your life. So 100%. I didn't go and see a specific pelvic floor physio or pelvic floor mm. sorry, but um, I just went to my general physio um, that I saw all throughout my sporting career. I make it sound like I'm an athlete. I'm totally not an athlete. But no, but you've you've trained, like you've had very structured training for a very long time with set intention to compete. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so like we're not at Olympic level, but you've, you don't train for like you, you train, you do enjoy it, but you've always had short and long-term goals attached yeah. to your training. Yeah. And there's always, always. kind of mixing mm-hmm. the competitiveness in there. But yeah, I went and saw Mike's way and he was amazing. Um, just giving me some simple activation drills with my core and my pelvic floor. Um, and that stuff now that I give to my current clients, you know, that stuff is invaluable to me. And it will be invaluable to you. Really invest in it. It's super important. I just, I, I can't emphasize the importance enough. It, it really helped me. My diastasis has come back to normal. I have great strength back in my core now. Um, but a lot of women don't have that success because they don't, don't do the crappy, boring stuff that no one wants to do. And that's what it is. It's boring and no one wants to do it. It really is a short-term sacrifice for long-term gain because I'm sure you've experienced it with clients as well, is that if they tend to skip those exercises because either they didn't recognize the benefit behind it or they weren't doing them properly or it was just boring and I don't want to, and then all of a sudden it tends to be more common to women that jump or run frequently and suddenly they're in a position where they've lost bladder control, they've had a prolapse, or they're having all these other issues and Either way, they need to go back to those basics again because, hey, if you want to improve on these conditions, we need you to be able to activate your pelvic floor. We need you to know how to activate it, when to activate it, and when to relax it. Like it goes both ways. You need to know both. Um, And sometimes skipping the cue of doing those movements because you just want to race to, you know, your favorite kinds of movement sometimes results in you going back to the boring stuff for twice and three times as long because you've accidentally done damage that now you've got no choice but to do those basics again. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we do want to go back to normal really quickly after having a baby. Like I I wanted to just go back and do all the stuff that I was doing beforehand. But you not only need to consider you've just had a vaginal birth or a cesarean, but you also have fatigue on top of that because you're producing extra milk for your baby or you're not, whichever, but you're tired. You're so tired. So the risk of you injuring yourself is so much greater because of the fatigue. You, know, you just 
the realization I made coming back after having my children was that it's just not quite the same initially. And I had to be okay with that. It's okay. I just have to do what I need to do now. I will get there eventually though. Did you find that yourself? Like I always thought that because I trained through my whole pregnancy, that when I started up again and like hands down, when I have a second, I will have a totally different attitude training because at the start it was like, I've got to get back to everything as quick as I can and I've got to lose some baby weight and all those common thoughts. Yeah. And I didn't know any better because my mind was in the mind that I had pre-baby when it comes to training, which is I can and I will. Yeah. And I wasn't really listening to what I was physically feeling. But my first oh, sessions, honestly, and you heard me talk about this because I was like, what is wrong with me? My strength turned to nothing and I thought I was lifting heavier when I was pregnant I'm not even carrying a human anymore and my where's my strength gone like I work so hard to maintain it and it's gone and you're like Jade you just had a baby like just do what you can and your strength will come back but sometimes you need to be prepared for that because I think if I had have known I would feel that way it would have been different but because I expected to at least have the strength that I had when I was pregnant like surely I'd have that postpartum surely and I, I absolutely did not. And also, I don't know why I didn't think this because common sense is movement patterns change depending on like your pelvis and your gateway. And I remember squatting, lunging, everything lower body felt so clunky and grindy. And where do my movement pattern go? Yeah. Where where do my hips sit now? Where Why aren't my knees aligning properly? And yeah. They were still safe movements. Like I could squat and lunge, but they just, they felt so different. And as we know, you know, your pelvis changes through pregnancy and I could squat and lunge my whole pregnancy because I slowly adapted to what my body was doing. And then all of a sudden shoot forward to baby gone and in my arms, my pelvis and gait is still so different. And yeah, I, I had no idea how much of a beginner I would feel. Yeah. Returning to training after a baby. And not going to lie, I almost felt insulted by myself. (laughs) Does that make sense? I was. You're failing me, body. Why are you doing this? Yeah, I I worked hard. And and it wasn't even on it. I expected to look different postpartum. I didn't know what to expect. And I knew I did, did have a weight loss goal, which. Uh, and to touch on that too, that's another thing you said to me is I remember thinking, why is my weight not shifting? Even a, a year after Kasima was born, you're like, Jade, you're still breastfeeding. Yeah. Like you don't know what's going to happen. And and your body's still doing so much. And I just remember once I stopped breastfeeding, my weight just shifted. I was holding so much fluid. And if anything, my training reduced because I got to a point where I'm like, I'm busting my chops. <laughs> like it's not working. So just whatever. I'm just going to have fun. And then I stopped breastfeeding and just the fluid dropped and my actual scale weight was the same, but the fluid just dropped. And I, I'll never forget being like, oh, I should have just listened to Belinda. Because <laughs> <laughs> everyone tells you when you breastfeed, it helps stabilize your weight and it helps you lose weight because you're burning so many calories. And I'm sorry if this triggering to some of my listeners because it's a very weight-focused episode, but it's normal to want to lose weight after your baby. And if you don't want to lose weight, that's that's fantastic as well. Like yeah. be happy and healthy. That's always the outcome. Yeah. But I did feel the pressure to get to a particular shape. And 
I am being brutally honest that I, I wanted to breastfeed for many, many reasons, but one of them was I thought it would help me regulate my weight. Yeah. And no, it made me ravenous. I was yeah. so hungry when I was breastfeeding yeah. and I was never going to not eat. That's one thing I learned through all of my eating disorders and HA recovery is when you're hungry, you eat. Yeah. And um, that was another thing I noticed too. I stopped breastfeeding and my appetite just halved and by no thought process, just it just wasn't there. It's funny you hear, I, I would hear all these stories, midwives would tell me all these stories, you, the weight would just fall off you when you start breastfeeding. Well, let me tell you, I gained weight when I was breastfeeding, right? I gained so much weight and I compete in a weight class sport. I have to be a certain weight and I had every intention of going back and competing after I had Jackson. So I, I was not prepared I thought, oh, okay, the way to fall off me. No, it didn't. Like, it, it really hung on to me until I stopped breastfeeding and until I started getting really good sleep. So, you know, there's one thing that I can say to people, this is what I've learned myself. Um, you know, it's so good to have goals and to set goals, but be kind to yourself. Be kind to yourself because... There are lots of factors that will influence you meeting your goals. Good sleep. Are you breastfeeding or not? You know, um, are you eating well? I would forget to eat, Jade. I would just be so busy throughout the day, which sounds absolutely stupid because like who forgets to eat? Well, I do. Mm-hmm. And then I would be so ravenous by dinner time. I would eat everything. Mm-hmm. Everything. And just it, it was um it was a real eye-opener. But that's that's another thing that I guess when it comes to researching the postpartum journey is like never underestimate having snacks available all the time. It's just what you were saying about you forgot to eat, but it's like if you had something in your bag or on the couch that was a bag of nuts or um, some fruit just ready to go, it's like, oh, crap, I haven't eaten in a little while. At least that's right there. Or a pre-cooked meal, you know, mm. like something just in the fridge ready to go because who has time to cook eggs and toast in the morning? And that was that was my, my breakfast for a long time, but... I found that I couldn't eat that anymore because I just I could, didn't have the time to cook or Jackson was going to be held all the time so I couldn't hold him and safely cook on the stove. Um, and that's such a big thing too, isn't it? Sometimes you have babies because Cosimo is the same. Um, they they want to be held all the time. And as linking right back to when we started is like just love them as much as you can. And if yeah. they want to be held, yeah, sometimes that means wearing a baby carrier 20 yeah. hours of the day. Um, and if that's what gets you through, that's what you've got to do. But just what you're saying on the cooking front, because you eat really well and obviously you've got your staples set for meals and all of a sudden this beautiful baby comes around, you are sleep deprived, he wants to be held and all the meals that are your quick and easy go-tos are now longer not available. Yeah. And then it's like, but who's got the capacity to think of what to eat now? Yeah, that's right. I just it's like I've got so many things to think about now and food is just not on the list. Yeah. So for anyone who's pregnant right now or is about to have a baby or is in that, you know, newborn phase, how can you make food easily accessible that's still nutritious and enjoyable? Do you need help? Can someone cook for you? Do you need to pre-order meals online? Yeah, um, how can you make that process easier? Because you've got so much on your plate already. Yeah, I had a beautiful friend. She's got four boys um, who are a little bit older than my children. And I remember her coming around one day and she had 
you know, um, six servings of vegetable soup and six servings of a butter chicken or something that she'd made. And I nearly cried. Mm. Oh, my God. She's gone to all this effort cooking a really great, wonderful food. Like, it just... It was just such a relief and it was cooked and it was ready to go. I just had to put it in the microwave. It was easy to eat. And I just remember. And it was yummy. Oh, and it was delicious, nourishing. And I just, I thought, wow, like if I ever know of anyone that's struggling in the future, this is what I am absolutely going to do. I'm just going to pre-cook something. Too bad they don't like it. (laughs) (laughs) It's food. It's nutritious. It's so good too because it is also one of those things where if you know their home, it's like, and if you're not in a capacity to come out and say hello, that's okay. I'll just leave it at the door because you never know what that new mum's going through. And as much as they want to see you, they might just not be ready and that's okay. That might be a disaster. And that's how much anxiety do you have about the house being oh my God. a mess? Like, and people were coming over and they think, oh, my God, I haven't mopped, I haven't vacuumed. The house is a disaster. The toilet's dirty. You know, and they're not there to see a house. Your friends are there to see you and your new baby and all the things that you used to stress about. Like, you know, just it's, it seems so silly now that I'm out of it, but at the time. Oh, it's very real. And it's yeah. and it's such a big deal. Like it's um it's very easy to catastrophize. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's yeah. like a disaster if my house is a mess and someone would come to visit or I hadn't baked. Like I love to bake. It's um it's just one of my hobbies and I love to do it. I, I love pleasing people with food. And you know, the thought of not having any baked goods in the pantry. Mm-hmm. Like, like how can I'm a mum now like I'm stay my mum what do I do all day if I don't have baked goods in the pantry you know <laughs> no and you create those stories absolutely and it's like no you're a stay-at-home mum who's busy with her kids all the time I've just recognized the time and because I just love talking to you <laughs> <laughs> and I absolutely don't want to cut this chat off and I feel like there's more episodes <laughs> in it um but I just wonder if we could maybe do a little summary before you go and that is introducing exercise postpartum and I just think you're such a great person to ask about that because one you've got the midwifery background side of things and obviously you've been in surgery and seen it you've also got the experience of you've had a cesarean yourself and you've also got an incredible training history and you're a personal trainer so you've kind of got all those different elements where um you might have noticed to someone who's trained as a midwife and obstetrician specifically, they can find it a bit tricky to give recommendations and guidelines because yeah. that, that's not their area of expertise. Um, but yeah, we're blessed to have you who's got all levels of experience and knowledge. So could you shine some light on that for us? Well, and I would like you to jump in too if I miss anything um, because, you know, you're a well-accomplished person from yourself um, and you've had children. Um, so I think the most important thing is this more postpartum specific. I guess it's it can you can talk both. You're more than welcome to talk pregnancy and postpartum. I'm sure people get lots of takeaways. So mate, let's do both. Let's do both. Yeah. Well, during your pregnancy, I think it's really important that you are setting goals that are not, you know, breaking personal records. Like when you're when you're training during pregnancy. Don't think about, oh, but I used to lift this much weight. It's not about that anymore. It's about just continuing a movement pattern and feeling good at the end of the training session. So as I said, I had a diastasis and my abdominal separated quite a lot. 
couldn't do anything overhead. So I would just do some bodybuilding exercises, bicep curls, bicep dips, some seated shoulder raises, you know, anything that I could just do that wouldn't create too much pressure in my abdomen. I really also would recommend focusing on your pelvic floor and your deep core muscles, learning how to turn them on, learning how to not turn them on too much because if you are turning them on too much, then you're not able to turn on your pelvic floor appropriately, okay? Um, and recognising how to turn on your pelvic floor, it's not something that someone can really coach you through. You kind of have to just flick it on and be like, oh, that's it. That's what they're talking about. Um, so really working on just keeping your body moving, not overheating, not getting your heart rate up too high. Um, and recognizing when you're not feeling quite right. There were many days where I'd go in to do a squat and I'd be like, hang on, and I'd run to the toilet and vomit. And I'd come back in and I'd be like, you know, probably not a squat day. Maybe I'll just, you know, go do something different. Um, just do some technique work with the bar or something like that. Because um, I, I, I was quite sick. I, I think I vomited. The last day I vomited was on like my 24th week. Oh, mm, that's a lot of vomiting. So, you know, like just gauging it on the day. You're not there to break records. You're there to just move and feel good about yourself and be happy. Um, so postpartum, give yourself the six weeks. Like your doctor tells you six weeks for a reason because it takes a minimum of six weeks, A, for your wounds to heal within your, with your cesarean section. And B, it really does take that long for all of your fluid shifts and your cardiac um, system and you know all of your muscles and your hormones to just level out and go back to normal your body has gone through such big changes um, it's not just about a belly and, and a baby in there like it's it's hormonal changes cardiac changes fluid shifts everything changes so give your body the six weeks if you want to go for a little walk and you can go for a walk just around the block do that there's no harm in that if you're well enough to do it, if you're able to do it, if you've had an episiotomy, you're not going to feel so great going for a walk a week after, right? So just I know that you desperately want to get in to the gym and just start training, but give yourself the six weeks if it's one thing that I can recommend. Next, start on those deep core activation drills, activating that core muscle, doing the pelvic floor exercises that you did perinatal during the pregnancy. Um, and just come back into like you would come back into training from an injury. Just say you've got a shoulder injury. You do some gentle rehab exercises with some bands or some really light weights. Just some getting your movement patterns back, you know, um, some easy warm-up drills, some easy yoga stretches. Getting, getting your movement pattern back is really important and to rush that will cost you a lot of time if you try and rush back into it you hurt yourself you hurt yourself badly um and like a rehab program i would say start really light just say you could deadlift 100 kilos while you were pregnant you're not going to do that postpartum at six weeks start with an empty bar start with some two three four five kilo dumbbells go slow it might be so easy and that's okay. You're not there to bust records on your first week back into training. You're there to get, as Jade said, your movement patterns back. You're meant to get some strength back, some, I call it a foundation strength. 
You've got to build a foundation, just like a building. You build a foundation, okay, you build it well, you build it strong, and then you can start layering on top of that, okay? So do just some really light, simple exercises, and please don't jump. You want to get back into double unders. You want to get back into running. You want to get back into, you know, box jumps, whatever. That's really great, but your body won't thank you for it. You'll hurt yourself. You'll hurt yourself. You'll hurt your pelvic floor. You know, you'll have bladder issues. You might even just hurt your hips and your legs and your knees because your body's still going through that adjustment, that hormonal change. Okay, your pelvis isn't going to be the same for a little while. It takes, you know, it takes months for your body to level out again, especially if you're breastfeeding. It'll take maybe even longer. So mm-hmm. I would highly recommend just don't jump. That's I've got ladies postpartum eight months and I still don't prescribe any jumping. We do lots of different exercises. You can do really great workouts without going for a run or without going for, you know, double unders and burpees and whatever else. Um, Resistance training is actually one of the best things for you. Um, I, I'm an old school personal trainer. I've been a personal trainer for a long time and it was always cardio, cardio, cardio. That's what makes you lose weight. Well, there's a lot of change and shift in that opinion now. We're actually, as we get older, for women particularly, resistance training is what's actually going to help us lose weight and making sure that we have, you know, a good balanced diet. That would be really really beneficial, very difficult postpartum when you've got a newborn um, and a family and a household that you're trying to run. Um, but really take the time. It's, it's important you just don't rush back into it. Start slow. It's annoying and it's really frustrating. And look, if you like jumping, if you like running, build up to it. Mm. Interval training first. Just, you know, run for 10 seconds walk for 10 seconds or 30 seconds. Don't just dive right in, otherwise you, you will hurt yourself and it'll be even more frustrating. So do you have anything else to elaborate on that? Jade, what do you think? Yeah, no, that, that was very detailed. Thank you. Um, I guess when it comes to training while pregnant, a lot of women are concerned they're going to cook the baby because mm. that's a common thing. Don't get overheated, you'll cook the baby. Um, and look, I was one of the women who was a little bit scared to train when I was pregnant because, you know, you, you've been blessed with this miracle and you don't want to do anything to lose it. And maybe your training will make you miscarry and, you know, all those sorts of thoughts. And one, especially that first trimester, when you do feel really sick, it's kind of impossible to push the limits anyway, because yeah. you just feel so sick. And even if your mind wants to, your body just says no. Yeah. And I actually found that throughout the whole pregnancy and when I did question my midwife about my training she just said your body is so intelligent Mm. and as long as you're listening Mm. you know what you have the capacity to do obviously we're not going to do anything lying on the back or crunches or you know certain movements are just not suitable while pregnant so obviously we're going to implement that we're not going to do those things Um, but when it comes to like lifting particular weights, if it feels good and you're not holding your breath and you're not getting dizzy and you're not, I guess, actually really good measure. If you finish your workout and you're exhausted, you've taken it too far. Like, and I guess what you were saying too, when we're not trying to break personal records or anything, this is just a, we're moving for health right now, for mental health and for physical health. Let's just keep moving. Um, But overall, you want to leave your workout feeling as good as what you did when you walked in. 
If you're feeling tired and you can't be bothered getting your butt there, that's probably a sign you're better off having a nap. And I know our whole life, it's like, no, go to the gym, make sure you train, do this, do that. But um, it's actually so different from that when you're pregnant. It's like, no, if your body's signaling rest, go rest. You can train later. You've got your whole life to train. Like it's okay. Um, But you can sort of, you can trust your instinct. And if you want to do say some Stairmaster for a little bit or jump on the Airdyne um, and get your heart rate up a little bit, and again, you're not experiencing any kind of negative feeling. Like it, it, it is okay to do it. Obviously get medical clearance just to be sure if you have any questions. And if you've never done cardio before, it's not a good time to start. Like we are purely going by, you've, you've done a heavy load of training and you've taken it right back and it feels good. Yeah. New stuff can wait till later. Like yeah. unless it's Pilates or yoga, like pregnancy safe Pilates and yoga for that matter, it can wait. Um, and then postpartum, like what you said, one, wait the six weeks. And it's so hard because you just want to race into it and get back into the swing of things. And sometimes it's just the mental health side. You just want to feel like yourself again and have your moment. Um, but yeah, be, be accommodating to all the changes that have happened and um slow integration of movements 100%, like you said, mobility focused, movement pattern focused. Um, I highly recommend seeing a pelvic floor physio, especially to make sure that you do know how to engage. And um, they can also give you some guidance on when to add in running and jumping because they they do do an internal assessment. If you allow it, they can actually check if you're contracting properly or if you're not. Um, but yeah, offset running and jumping for as long as you can. And that's not because you'll never be able to do it again. You absolutely will. Um, but your, your body definitely needs time. Um, and I guess the same protocol is when you're pregnant is if you're finishing these workouts postpartum and you're just as exhausted as when you walked into it, it's like you don't need that right now. Yeah. You know, you need to prioritize rest and sleep. And funnily enough, when you do do that, your body will change anyway. Mm. It doesn't have to be forceful. Um, but yeah, absolutely prioritizing pelvic floor and core rehabilitation, like over and over again, no matter what your favorite style of training is, it's just so important and so boring, but so necessary. (laughs) It it is, but if you incorporate it into your warm-up, as I said, like I have a set, you've seen my little set warm-up. I come and train with you and I do the exact same thing every time, arm circles, leg swings, do my, you know, yoga little poses and my hip um, release exercises incorporate that into your little warm-up and it will make the world a difference a you won't skip it and b you'll be really prepared for the work ahead of you in your actual workout so yeah get done (laughs) it's important so important now if anyone wants to reach out and chat with you about training programs or i guess anything we've discussed on here um your Instagram handle or email address, where can people find you? Oh, yeah. Um, I have two Instagram accounts. Um, one, my personal training Instagram account, uh, which is Get the Garage of Dreams or this Garage of Dreams PT. Make sure you put the PT on the end um, because there's lots of Garage of Dreams car enthusiasts. Um, <laughs> that's my Instagram. And, yeah, if you have any kind of questions relating to training or to you know, midwifery questions, you're having a hard time with breastfeeding or whatever, please reach out. I'm more than happy to, to answer your questions as best as I can. If I can't answer your question, I will always tell you I don't know and um, I'll try and put you in the right direction, you know, get, 
you need to continue while for the obstetrician, then I definitely have 100% agree to do that. Um, but yeah, Garage of Dreams PT, please reach out and um, I'll do the best I can to, to help you with your, with your questions or your, your problems or you just want to have a chat. I'm always good for a chat on the jokes. Yes, you're fabulous. You're a wonderful support system throughout the postpartum journey and for everyone after that. Um, thank you so much. So I'll link your Instagram handle in the show notes as well. So if anyone's not sure, they can go have a little look there. Um, but thank you so much for one, sharing your personal experience, sharing all of your knowledge. Um, and it's been a very informative podcast and I'm sure so many people will benefit from the content on an emotional level, from a practical level, um, and even just feeling more empowered about the whole experience. So thank you so much. A lot of fun and I, I feel really humbled to be asked to come onto your, your podcast so thank you again I do. no you're amazing how could I not <laughs> well you enjoy the rest of your afternoon and I'll see you next time thank you bye, bye. thanks so much for listening in on today's episode I hope you really enjoyed it and I'm always so grateful for your time and your decision to listen in to the It's a Mind Game podcast. If you didn't already know, I have created a health and fitness journal, which is available to download for free from either my Instagram or my link tree, which I will include in the show notes. It's just a means for you to assess and review how exercise is impacting your mind and your body. Um, if you have any questions about it, feel free to DM me or send me an email. Um, I hope you have an incredible day and I look forward to you tuning in on the next episode.